Um, for the last several weeks, there seems to have been a theme in uh, Father Ron, and then I noticed it was picked up again last week uh, by Father Sean, and I wanted to continue in that vein. Let's open up this morning, please, to John, the eighth chapter. A message I've entitled, Surprised by Grace. This is a, a familiar passage of Scripture, a story I'm sure we all know quite well. But it holds some very interesting lessons for us. Let's begin with verse 1. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of, of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Now, there are some interesting, interesting things to note about the nature of their effort to entrap Jesus. They were trying to hoist him on the horns of a dilemma, hoping he would either ignore the demands of the law, which would suggest to his followers, he's not a worthy teacher. He's undermining or diminishing the importance of God's word, his law and commandment. Or, on the other hand, he might be persuaded to stone the woman, which would be a problem on uh, at least two counts. First of all, those who have followed him would turn against him almost certainly, such hardness of heart. Additionally, it would have been illegal under Roman law to... Um, uh, incite such an event, and so he would have also probably been arrested for that. But what I find most notable about it was the simple truth that these men who brought this woman before Jesus cared nothing for her as a human being. She was simply bait for the trap. The um, bring that slide up, please. Of the uh, temple, Herod's temple. That's a little larger than a football field, actually. Herod's temple. Uh, that next slide, please. Was even larger, uh, and the area surrounding the temple that was the um, court of the Gentiles, uh, or the open court, and it was surrounded by a colonnade. People collected there in large numbers each day to hear. Um, the various uh, Sadducees or, or teachers of the law teach. The money changers were gathered there. This was a very public place. And these men who brought this woman before Jesus 
humiliated her in front of so many. Again, they did not, they had no concern for this woman or for her well-being. They were interested only in, uh, in trapping Jesus. Jesus' response was notable. He stooped and began writing in the sand. What was it he was writing? I said earlier, I made perhaps the disciples, he and the disciples were planning a game of flag football following the afternoon's activities and he was creating some uh, plays. I don't think so. Here's, here's the simple fact of the matter. We don't know. Scripture not only doesn't mention what he wrote, it doesn't even hint at what he wrote. And so, it's not important. It is not the point of this story. To me, what it signaled was simply this. He was turning a deaf ear to their accusation. His silent indifference spoke volumes to the motives of these men who brought this woman before Jesus. He was always ready to answer a sincere question. Always ready to act on behalf of those who had a need. And so, this was a very peculiar response from Jesus. He simply did nothing. Furthermore, he stooped and began doing something else that really clearly wasn't terribly important. He was doodling in the sand. As if to say, I don't have time for you men. They were clearly not accustomed to this treatment. And they continued to pepper him with questions. Finally, he straightened himself up and he said these now famous words, let anyone who is among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And from the oldest to the youngest, they began to file out silently. They had been shamed publicly. Jesus did nothing more than expose their humanity, their own human weaknesses, their own brokenness, and obviously their hypocrisy. He did nothing more than that to silence them. And they drifted away one by one. Until at last Jesus was alone with this woman. He said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on do not sin again. Can you imagine the relief that must have washed over this woman. A real reprieve is what she had received. But something more was happening. When Jesus spoke, things happened. When he commanded demons to flee, they fled. When he spoke to the winds and waves, the wind died down and, and, and uh, the seas grew calm. When he spoke, healing over those who were ill, they were made whole. There was real power in the words of Jesus. The worlds were framed, we know, by the word of God. God said, light be, and light was. When Jesus spoke, power was released. So, his words to this woman were both liberating. He, he liberated her from guilt and shame. Have you ever noticed in your own life, you're engaged in some behavior 
that uh, seems to hold you captive. And let's, uh, let me ask you, let's, let's talk about some of those behaviors. What are some behaviors that, for a Christian, are, are out of place? Uh, they're frustrating, they're discouraging when you engage in them, but they're common. Sorry? Judgment? I don't care for that one. <laughs> Judgment? Gluttony? Gossip? Worrying? Anxiety? Uh-huh. Anger? No one's ever said murder, and I must tell you, that relieves me. <laughs> and we've all slipped in, in, into uh, these behaviors, one and others. Lots of times our foibles are harmless. Sometimes they're a bit darker. And they can intrude upon our relationship with God and with others. And they cause often guilt and shame. And there's a vicious cycle that's set in motion through guilt and shame. You stumble. Maybe you lost your temper. Maybe an errant thought passed through your mind. And, and you... Uh, gave more time to it than you ought to have, allowed it to linger, and considered it. And suddenly you feel guilt, soon followed by shame. Rather than uh, empower you to move beyond that behavior, rather than strengthen your resolve, guilt and shame tend instead to chain you to that behavior. And you find yourself repeating it over and over again. And its hold over your life grows stronger and stronger. Jesus broke that cycle when he said to her, neither do I condemn you. We need to hear that, don't we? You and I need most, when we seem least worthy of it, to hear those words. Neither do I condemn thee. It has the capacity to break that cycle in your lives. Then he said, <clears throat> go and sin no more. Stop doing what you're doing. Now, we can read into that the words of a scold. Hey, lady, <clears throat> you dodged a bullet today. Don't do that again. You need to stay between the lines. Now, go on. That's not what Jesus said. Remember, when he spoke, power was released. When he said, go and sin no more, he was releasing her. This was a word of emancipation that liberated her from the power of that sin. I think she must have experienced uh, something akin to what uh, Paul wrote about in Philippians 2.13. Uh, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Both to will, I think, and to do His good pleasure, the King James reads. When Jesus spoke those words, something was released inside of that woman. There was a desire, a yearning to do what was right. An empowerment to follow through with it. To walk that out in her lives. To resist 
the temptations that ordinarily before might have found her ensnared in that sin once again. Um, Paul addresses this, this this entire dynamic in uh, Romans, the uh, 7th chapter. Let's turn there, please. This is an internal crisis common to every Christian. We have all seen the worst version of ourselves put in an appearance from time to time, haven't we? Said or done something wrong. Said or done something sinful. Every believer, every Christian experiences the reality of this uh, crisis. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Can anyone relate to what Paul is writing here? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, it sounds as if he's splitting hairs, but he's not. He's making a crucial distinction that becomes especially important for us as we work, A, to experience liberation in our our own lives, from sins, from behaviors which have plagued us, and as we work to serve as a catalyst in the lives of others who wish to be free uh, from these same nagging sins. What does it mean? Uh, It's no longer I am the one doing it, but sin which dwelleth in me. Again, it sounds as if he's splitting hairs. Is Paul trying to elude responsibility for his behavior? If I get pulled by a police officer on the way home today, driving the Prius, tearing down the road, 57, 58 miles an hour. Now, if I were to be pulled, uh, an officer would say, sir, you were doing 75 miles an hour. Ordinarily, I would give you a ticket, but since you're driving a Prius, I'm going to applaud you. If he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to ticket you, sir, I would say, well, officer, you, you, you've clearly made a mistake. Even when I was much younger, I only ran, it, it took me a full six minutes to run a mile. Maybe seven. Um, clearly, I cannot run 70 miles an hour. Sir, that was my automobile that was responsible for this. Not me. If you want to write my automobile a ticket, well, more power to you, but I'm not accepting that. I did not break the law. My automobile did. He'd say, nice try. I'm giving you the ticket. Why? Because my actions control the vehicle. My choices control what the vehicle does. It's responding to my choices. And Paul is not attempting to elude responsibility He is accepting uh, the fact that he is responsible for what transpires in his body. But he's making an important distinction. He He is identifying 
with the reality of the new birth. He is saying, because I am a new creature in Christ Jesus, it is no longer I that is doing this, but it is sin in me that is in my flesh. What, what is he pointing to here? When you and I received Christ, when we were born again, our spirit was reborn. It became entirely new. We'll see in a few moments. Nothing of the old remained. Everything became new. That is the real you. That is the real me. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Our righteousness remains intact. No matter what we may be doing at any given moment in Christ Jesus. then where do these impulses to do otherwise come from? Sin in our flesh. Think of it as the residue of our fallen nature. Our spirits were reborn, but we occupy a body. Our earth suit. It's what allows us to uh, live and move here on planet earth. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why is this distinction so important? Do you recall in 2 Chronicles when the spies were sent in to explore the promised land and they returned and they said, it's a fabulous place, extraordinary. Here's some of the, the fruit that we found. It, it's bountiful. It is a wonderful land. However, there are giants there. And, and their conclusion was that they, were, they would be unable uh, to um, overcome the enemies that occupied that land. They would be destroyed by them. And we read, interestingly, because uh, they, they were in their own sight as ants, so they were in their sight. The manner in which you perceive yourself is incredibly influential. It's very determinative. The identity that you have regarding yourself of your own person has enormous influence over your behavior. And he is making it clear to them, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. What God in Christ accomplished the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was sufficient. The new birth means a new beginning. It means a new you. And it took. In 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, Paul explores this a bit further. Let's begin with verse 15. And he died for all. So that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. Well, that sounds cryptic. What does that mean? 
we no longer uh, know Christ after the flesh, and we don't know ourselves or others after the flesh. It simply means this. We no longer narrowly, narrowly define ourselves or other people by virtue of their behaviors alone. Christ alone, God alone, enjoys the privilege of defining who and what we are. Our behaviors can't define us. Ultimately, our choices don't define us. What God says about you in the pages of this marvelous book tell the truth about you. Is that the way we have typically approached this matter in the church? I pastored for nearly 20 years before uh, going into the marketplace and I can tell you, at least from my own experience, no. We do not have embedded in our practical theologies a real sense and understanding of the effects of God's grace and its outworking in our lives. If, uh, if I were to observe Brent after the service uh, arguing with someone and it grew heated and suddenly he was angry and said something or did something that was inappropriate, you'd be embarrassed first of all. But what would we conclude about Brent? He's an angry man. Brent is an angry man. No, you're not. Are you? <laughs> I'm only kidding, Brent. We'll talk about this later over the phone. <laughs> if we observe someone that we know to be a believer engaged in some behavior unbecoming, that of a, a Christian, we tend to then label them as that sort of a person. We allow that event or that behavior to define who they are. Yeah, um, we're going to skip around a little. I'm going to have to tailor this a bit. Let's go ahead and find James, the fifth chapter, please. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Therefore, confess your sins or faults to one another. Let's just do that right now. We're not very eager to do that, are we? Why? Why, why, can't, uh, why can't Brent say to me, Larry, here, let me give you your hand there going to be all right, Brent. Um, why can't he say to me, Larry, I, I, I find that I have a real challenge with my temper from time to time. Why is he unlikely to do that? I'm soliciting answers right now. <laughs> I would define Brent by that. And we don't want to be defined by our faults, do we? I mean, we really 
slip on the mask before we pass through those doors typically, don't we? How you doing, Brent? Fantastic. Super. Great. Paul said that we will each, in relation to faults and foibles and sins, he said we will, every man bears his own burden. We are all similarly flawed. The human condition assures that each and every one of us is broken and in need of healing and wholeness. But why are we so reluctant to share that simple and obvious truth among each other? There's a reason why. And there's something we're missing. There's something invaluable we're forfeiting through our silence and our reluctance. Pray for one another that you may be healed. We live in the most connected society in history. Facebook. Instagram. Twitter. Messenger. A million ways to connect with each other. But in truth, Statistically, we are also now the loneliest generation. We know, people know about us what we choose to let them know. It's as if we have our own private internal publicist. We release very carefully information that tends to bolster the image that we're working to project. And we certainly, as a rule, don't, don't uh, offer them signs of weakness. Intimacy is built on trust. And trust requires vulnerability. The willingness to say, I, I have a problem. Now, it's not sim there's not simply power in acknowledging I have a problem. I worked in... Uh, conducting a substance abuse program while I was pastoring in Boston. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of people migrating into those programs that came out of AA. And so there's a real uh, eagerness to share, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm so-and-so and I'm a drug addict, or I'm so-and-so and I'm a sexual addict. Readily acknowledging that, but staying put there. I mean, they're... they're their resolve was not to do it again, but that was defining. I am an alcoholic. I, I can't imagine what it is to live under that sentence. For the believer, we are overcomers. What, what does that suggest? That language suggests that as an overcomer, I'm overcoming some obstacle that will eventually be left behind. Not as a permanent uh, part of my life, just as a part of my testimony. It is not just difficult, I think impossible, to practice this simple, ancient, spiritual truth. Unless we understand the nature of grace. And the dynamics that allow it to be liberated in our lives more fully. Wouldn't you like to have the ability to sit down and say to someone, I'm really struggling with this. 
and know that you will have found in them not a detractor, not someone who will now judge you by virtue of this behavior you've confessed to them. They won't define you by that, but will instead pray with you and affirm that what God has said about you is who you really are. And remind you that Satan traffics in lies. That is his stock in trade. His only power over you exists when and only when he is able to persuade you of a lie. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, Continue ye in my word, then you are my disciples, or you're taught of me. Jesus wants to teach us. Teach us how to live. Then you will know the truth. If we do what? Continue in his word. And the truth will make you free. Make us free from what? Lies. Satan's deception. A grifter, a confidence man, only enjoys the ability to persuade people of a lie if they are ignorant of the truth of the matter, right? And if he is exposed, or if she is exposed, the gig is up. That person holds no more power over them. Satan holds no more power over us than we grant him through being persuaded by his very crafty lies. Um, is this helpful to you? And so, go back one slide, please, Mike. Uh, go ahead, one. Go to um, Partners in Grace. Keep going. No, other way. Back toward James 5. It's right before James, the fifth chapter. Um, working in ministry, particularly with... Um, uh, ministry groups that worked with other ministers, I often heard, we need to establish accountability, um, um, uh, an accountability framework, and we need to develop accountability partners. It sounds wonderful. It sounds effective. But it always, and, and I mean always, has proven disastrous. When you find yourself in an environment that is working to enforce accountability, you become a very adept fig leaf crafter. You're going to work to cover your sin. Boy, I have these accountability partners, a.k.a. detectives, sniffing around my life. <laughs> I need to make sure I conceal these issues. I don't need them finding out. Because when you find out, it's, there's generally enforcement mechanisms in place. Well, now we've got to do this. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that, uh, particularly within the ministry, uh, we can afford to have ministers who are engaged in lifestyles not in keeping with their calling or their position. But what I was suggesting is rather than having accountability partners, why don't you have partners in grace? People who will affirm and reaffirm what God has 
in Christ accomplished in their lives. To remind them again and again of the definition God has applied to their lives. To help them identify with that truth and that reality. I think that will go much, much further in resolving uh, these challenges that we are witnessing so regularly among those called the ministry. But the same is true in our own fellowships. The thing that's troubling to me is once a sin is exposed, let's just take a typical congregation, that individual is often ostracized. And depending on the nature of the offense, they are sometimes removed. Now, someone who is unrepentant, we are actually encouraged by Scripture to, to uh, judge that behavior and deal with them in a fashion that helps them to understand if you continue in that, uh, you're in danger of, of uh, worse from Satan. Your life is exposed to the destroyer now. And this is what Paul was dealing with at the church at Corinth. He said, you've embraced this couple who are living in, uh, rem, uh, they are engaged in a lifestyle that the world, not the church, but the world, looks down their nose at. But you're, you're not helping them understand how destructive this is to them, nor how poisonous it is to the body. And so there are moments in, in, in which you have to deal stringently with an issue. That is the exception, not the rule. But when we discover something, it's remarkable to me how our attitudes change toward that person. If you are engaged in, a, and again, I'm not talking about something dark here, horribly dark, just something that would embarrass you for others to know. Our approach to that situation signals to everyone, never let your secrets out. Don't ever let your weaknesses be known or you'll find yourself out on the edges of the flock. The odd thing about that is, it is at that very moment, when someone is that vulnerable, that help is nearest. We take away with one hand what we hold out with the other. In 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> or no, I think we went there, didn't we? Let, yeah, let's go back there and continue that. So if any, verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now when we think of the ministry of reconciliation, we often think of sharing the good news with unbelievers. And that certainly is part of that ministry. But particularly as Paul is addressing it, he is suggesting that the ministry of reconciliation occurs within the church. We are no longer allowing people's behaviors to define who they are. We are eagerly reinforcing what God has said about them. Particularly as they disclose their struggles. We are working to remind them. We are ministers of reconciliation reconciling their opinion of themselves with God's opinion of them. It's a holy duty. It's an exciting ministry. 
helping people on that very basic level. And I'm convinced that if we all genuinely understand that, our churches would be places of healing. There would be, uh, we would have much healthier Christians and much healthier churches if we were actually uh, daring enough to practice the simple truth of confessing your faults one to another. Now that's something you can't just jump hell-mell into, is it? Don't grab someone after the service. Hey Brent, you slip into the office there are a few things I want to tell you. And Brent comes walking out going, oh God. No, it means begin to consider the possibility. Begin working through in, in your own mind the implications of these truths. And then with those you're in relationship, begin to discuss these things. And then at some point, together, cross that line. Husbands and wives, parents and their children, and then fellow believers in the church. It's an exciting prospect, isn't it? Now generally, we don't have to confess our faults to our spouses because they are so deeply aware of them already. <laughs> they can simply detail them for us and we can nod in agreement. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, as we do that, there are a couple of... of uh, of a practices that can help us along. I'd like you to, as we close, uh, let's go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter four. Well, I'll read it from that actually. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. Next one. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the flesh. These lying desires, desires which try to persuade you, you are something other than what Christ has said about you. Uh, back up for just a moment, please. One, one slide. Lay aside the old self. Put off the old man. Would you like to do that? Put off the old man? We're often encouraged to put off the old man. Well, how do we do that? I'm sure you've puzzled over that before. New Year's resolution. They're like, uh, they're like deadlines. What is it? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I love the sound they make when they whoosh by. <laughs> we make a resolution. And uh, we are resolved to keep that resolution. Poof. It's not kept. I don't know how many times I resolved to uh, lose weight. You know, I had a certain weight, and then five years ago I started in a position... And I was behind the computer like 60 hours a week. And I started to put weight on. And I thought, well, I, I've got to stop. And 
And that one decision was so meaningless because I just kept uh, growing before my very eyes. And I walked into the bathroom one morning and I said, I, I recognize you. Larry, is that you in there? Hang on, buddy, I'm going to get you out. But it was so challenging. You walk by the refrigerator at night and it says, hey, buddy. It, the resolve was meaningless. Uh, cardiac arrest got my attention. <laughs> um, lost weight. Gobs of grace. Gobs and gobs of grace. Um, we all want to put off the old man. I, why did I lose my temper? Why did I say that about that person? Why did I do that? We're eager to put off the old man. Want to is not enough. Here we're told, put off the old man. In verse 26, we're told, on to, we're told to put on the new man. Okay, I'm all for it. I'm eager. I want to put off the old man. I want to put on the new man. I want to stop doing these dreadful old deeds. I want to start embracing this new life. And walking in this new and living way. How do we do that? I'm sorry, Mike, go back once again. Sandwiched in between those uh, two commands, to put off the old man, put on the new man, we read what? That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the nexus. How do we put off the old man? How do we put on the new man? We become renewed in the spirit of our mind. It's akin to Romans 12 too. Be transformed. That's the word metamorpho. It's the same process that occurs. We refer to uh, uh, that occurs in the as a, a butterfly or a, a, a caterpillar is wrapped up in his uh, chrysalis or cocoon and emerges a beautiful butterfly. If you didn't know that a caterpillar or that a butterfly was once a caterpillar, you'd never guess they were one and the same. You'd never guess that a frog was once a tadpole if you didn't know that tadpoles eventually became frogs. It's utter transformation, and that's what is possible for our lives. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. With what? Truth. Turning to Scripture on a regular basis and learning what God says about you. Romans the 8th chapter, Paul laments his condition in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, he concludes, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then we have Romans the 8th chapter, a chapter in which there are no imperatives, just a description of what God in Christ has accomplished in you. But he encourages us not to be uh, carnally minded, to be mindful of the things of the flesh, mindful of a reality defined and dictated by what we can see and feel, what our senses can perceive and affirm as real but rather to be spiritually minded, to mind the things of the Spirit, to be convinced of this reality described by God's Word, to be convinced that His Word is truth, no matter how convincing the lies around you or at work in you might appear to be. But we have to go to that daily, don't we? But the relationships that we have with one another ought to to be the second great source of truth and encouragement as we reaffirm with each other what God has said about us.
that we welcome the sort of vulnerability that would allow someone to be comfortable enough to say, Brent, I have a challenge. I have a problem, and it's a recurrent one. And I want you to pray with me. And I'll explain to you what happened to your wallet. But we don't have that. I mean, in all uh, frankness, we don't really have that right now. I've, I've ministered in the United, all across the United States in five continents and I've not seen it at work to the degree that is suggested in Scripture anywhere. But it ought to be. I want to encourage you this week to turn to God's Word more, more frequently perhaps than you have. And when you read something about what God wants us to do, how He wants us to behave, understand He's already accomplished that in you in Christ. He's describing who you really are. James calls, he refers to the, the Word of God as a mirror. What do we see when we look in the mirror? Yeah, like it or not. That's us. That is a reflection of who we are. He's encouraging us to look into the Word of God as if it is a mirror. It is describing who we are. The second thing I'd really like you to do this week is to consider the possibility of talking with someone who is a close friend, a brother, a sister in Christ, and exploring these ideas together. It may take a few weeks. It may take a few months. But eventually, I think you all will arrive at a place where you and your friend will say, I'm ready to share something. And in that place of prayer and agreement, discover real power, transforming grace for your life. Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us, for your kindness, and for your mercy. We yearn for greater freedom. We yearn for greater intimacy with you and with one another. Illuminate these truths in our lives, Father. Cause them to become more real to us, more urgent. May they give us hope and inspire us to walk them out. pray that as we, we consider these possibilities, Lord, that your peace would wash over our lives and that we would be emboldened to take those first few steps. In Jesus' name, amen.